Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for episode 17, season two of the Arms Boom and Leg Project. Back again live tonight, broadcasting from beautiful Amherstburg, Ontario at the Little Heart Social Studios. Uh, I'm Arms and glad to be back with you. Took last week off. Um, kind of a big deal in our family. Uh, my wife, who I want to give a quick shout out before we get into my guest this evening, uh, gave birth to our daughter, uh, Olivia Rose Boomenlag at Windsor Regional Hospital uh, last Monday. Uh, and it's been a whirlwind of emotion. It's been um, a lot of sleepless nights, but totally worth it. And she's doing really well. Um, I did post a few photos of Olivia. If you want to check it out on my Facebook page, uh, Liam is adjusting my eld my eldest son. So weird to say, I was saying to my guests, like I say, I have kids now, plural. He's adjusting, but uh, everyone's good. And just a shout out to my wife. Uh, women are amazing. And uh, she has just been uh, the rock of our family. Let's just say that. So Carrie is feeling better. She's recovering. Um, Olivia is uh, sleepy and she is being welcomed home with open arms. So thank you for all your kind well wishes over the last little bit. Uh, my family and I really appreciate it. And I want just a quick shout out to uh, the nurses uh, at the OB uh, department at Windsor Regional Hospital. Uh, Kelly, Deb, Lisa, Dr. Suga, amazing individuals who made our experience quite different from the first round um, with Liam, obviously going from Windsor to London to sick kids within uh, 48 hours compared to well, you've got a daughter and uh, kind of hunkering down for a couple of hours. So uh, anyways, glad to be back. Um, lots of things to talk about tonight. We've got a fantastic guest who's joining me in just a few moments here. And this is a topic that I've talked about quite often uh, on the program. And she's going to talk a little bit about it. We're going to share some of our experiences and talk about what's being done here in 2022. My guest is a proud Black South Asian Caribbean woman. She uses and utilizes her privilege and experiences to fortify some powerful changes in business and education seeks to innovate instructional strategies to integrate the diversity present in our social and working environments. And as an educator, she works to nurture the value of diversity by expanding content and current approaches to DEI education. Uh, by doing so, her efforts increase equity and representation, promoting success for all learners in our globalized society. She engages in the community to increase equity, upholding the common good, and working to increase human dignity for all. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, dive into the topic of DEI, diversity, um, equity, and inclusion. Janelle Abella is my welcome guest on the program. Janelle, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Good to see you. Thank you, Arms. Good to see you as well. Congratulations. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. Like I was saying to you just before we went live, it's like I'm telling people, hey, I've got to go pick up the kids, plural. <laughs> right? And I'm just kind of wrapping my head around it. But yeah, thank you very much. Um, it's been a week of um, learning and something that, uh, you know, as I'm holding Olivia uh, last couple of nights and, you know, turning on the news at like two in the morning, uh, watching some of the things that are happening around the world at CNN and uh, certainly on CBC, uh, you know, we were talking just before the show too. I mean, my background is, you know, I'm, uh, I'm biracial myself, um, part Filipino, uh, also um, Chinese and, and French Canadian in there as well. But we talk about, you know, bringing diverse voices to the table. And I don't want to plaster that sort of topic that, you know, you can put on a t-shirt or stick it on a corporate poster in the lunchroom, uh, so to speak. But, you know, with some of the work that you've done that you continue to do, what exactly does that mean? You know, bringing diverse voices to the table here in 2022. And I, I guess, you know, what does that mean from a business standpoint? I mean, for companies that still haven't really got their heads around what that exactly means and how that can be beneficial for them as well. Yeah, I think that that is a big question that everyone's really asking right now is how can we be a part of this journey? And the answer is that the diversity is already there and it requires some looking inward. So when you start to talk to people and you start to explore what is what who makes up your organization, then you already identify that diversity. So a lot of the conversations in the last couple of years have been really focused on racial diversity and gender or sex diversity. But if you really want to get into that intersectionality and that component of all the things that make up who you are, you're going to find that every single person walks a unique experience and it's about leaning into those experiences. So it's not just saying here, here's this person up in the wall. Um, it's understanding what their experience has been like, 
how their experiences can be changed and understood better within that organization to make it better. We are a really broad, diverse community in Windsor, Essex, and leaning into that is how people can start that journey to change. I'm glad that you you said that we are diverse. I mean, I, I always used to feel, I mean, growing up in the 80s and the 90s here in Windsor, Essex, born and raised, right? Decided to plant roots here, start a family here. I always felt um, not as represented, I guess, in 2022. Uh, I mean, as a kid, you you kind of look around and, you know, you, you kind of who who have those same shared experiences like you um and now you flash forward to 2022 and and you're right i mean a lot of the folks i know in real estate you know we were talking about the influx of, of folks who are coming down from toronto coming down from the gta area even uh, new canadians who are settling here in windsor essex and that's going to only increase over the next little bit it's a different windsor essex i think and it will continue to evolve and grow and dare I say, you know, for the better over the next uh, several years as well, as we start to welcome and and, and bring in these uh, different groups of people and, and different cultures and diff- different ethnicities to, to the Windsor-Essex area. Yeah, if we look at the timeline, I started doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work because of my experiences growing up. And so for the last couple of decades, I've been trying to figure out why I experienced the world the way I did and how I can change it for other people who have experienced similar things as myself. But as those couple decades have passed, the diversity has grown and this conversation is really just kind of sparking up again. Even though if you were, if you really want to go back, we had the civil rights movement more than in my lifetime ago. And so we are revisiting an issue that we've known as an issue is still an issue. And now in 2022, we're kind of asking, okay, why aren't we doing it? And why can't we just be better now. We know we know there's an issue. Let's let's tackle it. Next question, then, Janelle. So, so why aren't we doing it? What have you seen in some of your work around the region? What, why isn't there more representation at that level? I think there's a lot of fear. A lot of fear that comes with admitting that there's a problem. And we know in conversations, especially surrounding racial inequity. There's fear associated with identification. If you're not a person of color, if you're not a woman, if you're not on the t- in a part of the 2SLGBTQIA plus community, you feel like you're guilty of something, like you, sh- you don't deserve to, to be in that conversation. But the reality is those are the people we need to have in the conversation. And those are the people that need to kind of jump in and say, let me, well, like, what can I do? How can I learn about it? And and kind of take those initiatives. And right now it's all being placed on those equity seeking groups and that's putting them in tokenized positions. There's a cause for a lot of uh, performative action. And then the true work's not being done because there's still a separation between the equity seeking groups and then your dominant groups who really need to be a part of that change. And I think that overall is that big barrier to, to taking that next step. You mentioned tokenism and 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 sort of you know saying oh look we've we've hired this person or we're promoting this particular person too is that is that um, sort of a band aid uh, a more common band aid approach that you've seen over the last uh, several years doing this? I think that putting people in positions of power is it's it's hard to say because a lot of those people are justified in gaining those positions. A lot of people have worked really hard to be in in highlighted roles. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are being put in opportunities to speak their experiences because the the people who have the power to do work aren't doing the work themselves. They're not educating themselves. They're not putting in the time and they're just putting those people up on a pedestal saying, tell us, tell us what we do. Tell us about your traumas and tell us about the change. And that's where it becomes problematic because the change isn't genuine. It's just because they have to change. It's like a knee jerk reaction basically, right? To what Mm -hmm. they're seeing. Maybe their different sectors are seeing a little bit more of the progressive um, competitors uh, uh, who, and, and I wanted to talk to you about this too. I mean, the business case alone, I mean, outside of the, it's the right thing to do that should be doing, um, from a talent perspective and certainly from, uh, a market reach perspective and even a profit perspective, this is, this is the right thing to do. It shouldn't just be a knee jerk reaction from a business model case. It makes sense. 
Yeah, there's the humanity perspective where we should treat everyone with dignity and respect. And then there's the business case, which is often what a lot of people have to be pushed on because that's the only way they'll do it. And it comes down to higher profit margins, top line growth, the decision making and problem solving. It's all increased because you have diversity of thought. If you were raised differently than I was raised, we are going to look at the problem differently. And so we might be able to solve it faster, be more innovative. And I know my time at WeTech, I was exposed to that because I'm watching all of these diverse entrepreneurs coming up with unique solutions to problems that we have in our society, in in North American Eurocentric society, because they didn't grow up here. They have maybe solved this problem five years ago because that's what they experienced five years ago, especially populations coming from South Asia, South America, and, and they're experiencing things that are now starting to become an issue here, but they're innovating way faster. So if we incorporate and integrate those ideas and those people into even entrepreneurship or any organization, it's just a new way of thinking. And, and that can't be anything but successful. Janelle, in your, in your experience, I mean, I mean, we've got so much ground I want to cover you t- uh, with you tonight. Um, and, and thank you again for being on with me. I, like I said, I've always been a big fan of your work and, knowing and hearing about, you know, some of the stuff that you've done with WeTech and some of my friends that work there, including Adam Castle, shout out to him. Um, is it a question of, you know, you have these these folks who, again, are in these positions of power who are, are I don't want to say have the horse blinders on, right? But they've done things a certain way for so long that they're just resistant to change. Because I feel like in the last 20 years, I mean, I'm going to go back to what I know again in my broadcast career in 20 years. I mean, when I first got into broadcasting, uh, early 2000s, you know, MySpace wasn't even a thing yet. And then here we are in 2022, you know, we're, it's YouTube, Instagram, I mean, TikTok, all these different things. And it seems like the advancements that are happening are happening at a breakneck pace. So it's like all these different things that are happening. It's not like it has been status quo before and say in the 80s and the 90s when things are sort of a little bit slower because of the advent of the internet wasn't as prevalent. But now it's like we're a more globalized society. There's access to information quicker. Does that come into play with sort of the resistance that, you know, some of these folks in positions of power might see? Well, there's a really great quote that I always uh, like to reflect on here. And it's, we don't know what we don't know. And so for a lot of people who are in homogenous settings, especially in executive positions, you're often surrounded by people that look like you, have the same education, maybe have the same uh, socioeconomic status or religion. You'll never know what you don't know if you don't step out of that group and start to involve these people in your learning process. And I think that's where um, what it what it boils down to is that there's no opportunity for them to step out. And they don't have that breaking point yet where it's a necessity for them to step out because the market and these industries haven't quite hit that tipping point where they need to include diversity or need to change up the way that they're approaching their business model. And so they're still comfortable in saying no to, to DEI. And then I think when it comes down to it, it might be too late because other organizations and other um entrepreneurs are are leaning into that and they're pushing forward in that direction and they're going to surpass it and overtake all of these people who are not. Well, then you look at the the reverse of that too, right, Janelle? It's like the market-based, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's just as diversified as is the talent pool, right? Mm-hmm. And I think some people would, would then, depending on the particular business that you're in, they sort of gravitate towards you know, sort of those executive decisions that sort of filter down to the end result for the user, right? So, I, I mean, I'll go and I'll look at, I'll, I'll use broadcast as an example. Um, you know, when, during my tenure at the CBC, um, you know, for what we were doing at the six o'clock news, uh, I was quite proud that our anchor team was the first uh, uh, entirely um, biracial anchor team uh, in the Windsor Essex area that we had from about 2018 to 2019 for at least a year. And I think that was a first, I think, for the region. But then if you go up to Toronto, I mean, that's, that's, it's common, right? You see yeah. it, you see it from the CBC down to CTV. Um, is it just because this area is, I don't want to say behind, but is it wasn't really reflective of what was happening at that point, do you think? 
I think that we're diversifying later than other regions. Um, but I also think that you have to be responsive to that demographic, your market, like you were saying. And in Toronto, they've seen that diversity for a lot longer. So it's become kind of integrated a lot quicker. Here, we're just starting to see that influx of newcomers and we're seeing that diversity kind of change up. And I know when I was teaching, if I was teaching uh, at some schools in our region, I would see all... Uh, white students. And then I go to other schools and I would see all black students or all newcomer students from the Middle East. Um, and, and it was just, it was so mind blowing because there's still pockets of our communities that are so homogenous, but then people will live and work in these for so long. And perhaps even based on the socioeconomic status, run the companies that are intertwined within our our um, ecosystem uh, of, of businesses here, because it's unlikely that their executives will live in the core where we see that diversity the most, despite that being their market. Yeah, I, I think you hit the hammer with the nail there, um, Janelle, because I, I I used to really wrap my head around some of the choices. Again, I, I'm speaking from my experience, right? And certainly, I, you know, I encourage people who are watching this to kind of chime in and, and talk to my guests and, and throw some questions at my guests about it, too. But I, I mean, even in terms of what has been covered from a news perspective, um, I know that there's been some strides in the last three to four years to really reflect the underserved communities. And I think the CBC locally does a great job of that. Um, but again, I think resources are at a uh, at, or at a premium, but I, I do applaud them for continuing to look for some of those underserved uh, communities here locally and try to find those unique original stories to cover. Uh, that being said, I also feel, um, you know, from another standpoint, they cover certain things that are reflective of those bedroom communities, which are all important to the fabric of Windsor-Essex. But like you said, they don't really represent of what's happening in, uh, and, and I use in West Windsor in the downtown core, um, along Wyandotte Street. Like they're not really reflective of those particular communities. And I, I would say, I think, and maybe you can speak to this, even from a, an editorial standpoint, you don't have those people who see the value or choose not to see the value of representing those particular voices in those those areas because one, they don't have a connection to them. Two, it's not what they know, and three. Um, Maybe it's something that they don't deem, quote unquote, newsworthy, which I would think is very detrimental to the end of the day. It's tiring, too, for those people who are constantly putting their story out there, constantly saying, this is the trouble we're facing. We're in a community with you. Why can't anything be done? So that is one side of it. And the other side of it is exactly what you said, is that care model. We, as as humans, categorize people. And if we can't associate with you based on a social factor, whether it's um, where we work, where we went to school, if we play on the same team or we shop at the same grocery store, go to the same gym, whatever it is, if we can't associate with that person in some way, then we can very easily dehumanize them. And then that way, when we see it on the news, even though I might drive down Olette or drive down Wyandotte and see that person, I can separate them because I don't have that association with them. And that's a very big challenge that we face in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's the root of what I try and do is start with understanding where you situate yourself socially and then how you um, view the world around you based on that social location. And there's a, a quote that goes with that too. It's we don't see the world um, from where we are. It's we see the world from who we are. And so our different perspectives uh, are based on our social location, our identity factors, and you see the world differently than I do, and as will everyone else. And so we can separate ourselves and dehumanize people and then not care about uh, what happens to them or what is happening to them, regardless if we can help. Janelle, you're, you're speaking about sort of knowing those experiences because we, we know them or we don't know them. So my question to you, through your teaching and your experience and, and what you do, how much of compassion factors into um, learning and, 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 and absorbing what uh, DEE and I stand for and, and what it can mean, not only for the individual, but for a corporation, a company or an organization? I think it goes back to understanding why you don't have compassion first. Um, I have experienced my own 
um, difficulties in life. And so I understand how it is. And it makes it a lot easier for me to understand another person's circumstance who might be similar to mine, even though the actual situations are different. For organizations, they have to take an opportunity to understand why they don't care about those people within the organization, why they don't care about changing their organization, and then reframing their mindset to understand that caring about these people isn't just about giving them a piece of the pie. And I know that pie conversation comes up all the time where we say, if I'm going to give that person some more uh, pay, or if I'm going to give them um, an opportunity to have a livable wage or food in the lunchroom or more paid breaks or time off, I am going to lose out because of that. And that's not the end of DE&I for organizations is is a win-win. As you start to increase your pay, they the more people will work for you, you make more money and your revenue goes up and your solutions might be better. And it's it's a all around transformation. And it's not just, oh, I have to spend more of my revenue to make these people happy. In your experience, you know, um, you know, educating workplaces and, and organizations, has it been a challenge uh, in some cases? I think it's a challenge in a lot of cases. Um, you, It's very polarized. People either really want to do something or they are really scared or hesitant to do something. And then there's a, a whole nother mix that's here and that's logistics. If people don't have the funding within the organization, which I think is subjective as well, or they don't have a team of people that want to commit to those endeavors, to implementing the changes, and then there's time. And a lot of people will blame logistics for the reasoning of why they don't do it. But I truly think that there's more underlying issues there because if you look at the benefits and you see the benefits that can exist for your organization, then you should be able to invest it. Just like you invest money in any other organizational growth product. If you're going to invest in ergonomic chairs so that your people don't get strained and take off time work or invest in a new facility or, or whatever it is, it's the same type of investment it's just investing in humans and in investing in the power that they can have, which is beyond the 40 hours of work they're putting in that week. And it comes full circle too, right? You're investing in these folks. They feel more uh, inclined to say, this isn't just a job. This is something I believe in. I think that's where that mind shifts, shifts right? And we talked about this before we went live too, about the whole work from home model for some folks and, and in some organizations that are able to do it. Um, and continue to do it about how much they put in maybe past the 40 hours a week uh, because they are able to spend a little bit more time for with their families. It's I guess it's, it goes back to investing in your employees so they really want to be a part of quote unquote a team as opposed to just a cog in the machine. Well, and when you invest in your employees and they invest back in you, they're going to tell you the solutions that are going to keep them around longer. If they want to stay somewhere, they're going to fix those little kinks, whether that be adding an extra sick day or, for instance, I know in the in the um, trades industry, it's women talking about PPE and the comfort of PPE for to fit their bodies and to fit their their needs, especially I know coveralls for women are completely different than coveralls for men. And so when you have people that want to be there, they're going to help you keep other people like them there. Janelle Labella is my guest uh, today. Uh, if you are listening to us after the fact, don't forget you can find past episodes of the show uh, on my uh, iTunes channel. Uh, you can also find the live streams from season one and two on YouTube as well. Just search arms, boom and like. Um, and we are talking about DE&I, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion here in Windsor-Essex. It's a hard row to go for folks who don't fit the quote-unquote standard bill of what maybe a non-progressive manager thinks, right? I mean, I, I can only speak to certain, certainly before, you know, things that have happened to me in my broadcast career, um, you know, and it, it, it's, it's, I've always felt like I've had to work three times as hard to get you know, just even the same kind of uh, even playing field as somebody else. And I think uh, when you when, when you're apt to do that, 
um, it kind of opens your eyes. I mean, I, I go back to the early 2000s where DE and I wasn't necessarily as full. I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd take a stock photo of, you know, different fo- people and put it up in the lunchroom and say, you know, you know, look, you know, this is our, our workforce. And you'd never see those people in the building because it just it wasn't the case. So it, it's a bit of a tough row, I would imagine, for folks I can speak to, again, uh, some of my experiences. But I think that's maybe something that you've heard or even experienced yourself, Janelle. It is. And I've had opportunities in workplaces and even in education where I have prompted an idea or a solution and it's turned down. And then I hear someone else um, put up the same idea and then it's it's the best thing that could have ever happened. And for a long time, I have felt that way. And I know that within organizations I've been a part of in the past, that's a driving force to what I'm doing now. Because I know that not all of the issues that I've faced are malicious. I know that some of it is just because they don't know what they're doing or they don't know the impact of the things that are happening. And so a lot of the efforts that I've put in are to alleviate those strains on people who are facing this every single day, whether it's microaggressions, which I don't even really like the term microaggressions because I think that they're just aggressions, we shouldn't minimize them. And you're experiencing that constant compounding trauma in the workplace, in your community, on social media, and then still expected to perform at the same level with no supports, no recognition or acknowledgement as people who may not face those same experiences. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to talk to you about too is, you know, the, the, the whole when do we say, you know, when you say it's not malicious, but when do you say to folks where, you know, you, you, you come into a particular situation, Janelle, and you're like, okay, wait, there may be an issue here because this may not be somebody who just doesn't know what they're doing, or maybe they just, they're not aware, but this is maybe something a little bit more deep seated. I think that in 2022, there's a lot of things that um, you should know at this point. We've had so many big social issues in the last two years. And that's been racial hate, hate against gender and sexuality, hate against literally every type of intersectionality that you can find. I know that there's so many campaigns to continue for equity seeking groups. I don't understand how someone can claim naivety at this point. Um, I know that we're always progressing and we're always working towards understanding more. But there is some responsibility put on you as an as, as an aggressor, as someone who's willingly treating people a certain way without knowing. There's resources out there. There's companies out there. There's people out there that you can educate yourself through. Now, when I say that some people aren't being malicious, I say that some microaggressions and some comments that are being made are so common and socially accepted that people just don't know that they're wrong. And I think a big one that I hear quite often is I don't see color. And people say it because they want to talk about equality and the fair treatment of others and how they want to treat everyone the same way. But it doesn't acknowledge the history of traumas and the history of neglect for people of uh, Black, Indigenous and other people of color that they've experienced in their lives, which essentially is rendering them invisible. And so I think that some situations you can lean into naivety and, and innocence in, in the action, but then there's certain things, especially given the accessibility we have online and the plethora of resources that are out there, you can't claim it anymore. You can't say, oh, I just didn't know that you as a woman should be paid more equal pay to to a man like i I didn't know that and i think that's where where the the problems are i think a lot of that has to do i mean from a managerial perspective is you have somebody that again this goes back to having those voices at the table and i and i wanted to talk about that board perspective with you in the next couple of minutes too but you know from a managerial even a hierarchy of, of of managers and middle managers and you know leaders when you have folks who are able to, you know, really open up the spectrum and say, again, from those lived in experiences and, and what they've experienced to say, hey, there's a certain way we can do this. There's a certain way we can reach out. There's a way that I think we can engage um, different sectors. 
And they're able to sort of execute that from the, I don't want to say the top down, but from a different place that hasn't been executed before, and then measure that, that can be a pretty strong instrument from change. But again, you, you almost need to have that person in play uh, to make that change happen and then support that person too. I think from even a higher position to say, okay, we're going to let this person go and let's see the measurable results. Uh, because I think, you know, folks want to see that too. And and then from a, a senior leadership per, uh, perspective, it's nice to see that, you know, you have that faith in the people that you're putting in because they're, it's the right thing to do. And, and, and you have that backing of them as you push forward these different measures and, 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 and different avenues of equity for individuals in your organization. I think that there's a couple of misconceptions with diversity, equity, and inclusion. The first, which I understand because my husband's an engineer, so metrics are a real thing here, is that metrics cannot live as the sole determination of whether diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are successful. I think that a lot of these initiatives are subjective and a lot of them are based on the improvement of well-being. There are metrics that can be analyzed. Are your sick days going down? Is your employee retention longer? And those types of questions can be asked, but then there's a whole other aspect of it that is based on that qualitative analysis. And that comes from talking to the people within your organization, something that does not happen nearly enough. And when you talk about that top-down perspective or even uh, middle management down or going back up, it's the reducing of social leveling that allows that. When you stop having to worry about if you're going to get fired because you tell someone that you struggle with mental health or if you tell someone that you feel like they're being racist towards you by what they're saying, there's a lot of fear that goes into reporting. And so those conversations in a hierarchical structure don't exist. People will keep them keep quiet or they might not say anything. A struggle I find with a lot of organizations is that they're scared to report issues of discrimination or harassment from someone else due to that person's relationship with a manager or a superior. And so when it comes down to that open, honest change, there's a lot of external powers and internal powers that are pressuring that and keeping it bottled in. Yeah. And then it's like a powder keg, right? I mean, again, speaking to some of the things I've experienced over the years too, you just bottle it all in. And then at some point, you know, some of your most, I would say, productive people, uh, passionate people, they just, you know, you throw in the towel at some point because um, it's not being, I don't want to, policing is not the right word, but it's not being, again, it's that corporate jargon those mission, vision, values that you can put on the side of a wall. But if nobody's really, like you said, working with people, talking to the staff, ingrained, like these are our values. This is what we value in an organization. It's it's just all it's it's all lip service at that point. It's not anything actually actually actionable to see that change in the organization. Exactly. And that's what drives people to leave, but it also drives people to stay silent. If no one is saying anything at all, then you're not going to have anyone ever come forward because then that instills fear in those individuals and it might perpetuate those ideologies. If you know that someone else can get away with treating people a certain way, they might try it as well. And so that could, ex they, that could increase the amount of um, incidences that are posed against uh, equity seeking groups in organizations too. You know, what is your take overall? I mean, this is a pretty loaded question, but uh, of Windsor Essex and and you know organizational um, DE and I um, across the board. You know, as we head into the next 10, 15 years, I mean, we've had some pretty big announcements over the last uh, month with where we're going to go as a as a community with the battery plant. Uh, certainly, a third shift returning to uh, Chrysler Stellantis. Um, you know, all the spinoff jobs. I, I, I was saying to somebody, again, in my real estate circles um, over the last little bit that I don't, I mean, it's great to see Windsor being uh, economically diversified to a point um, and the investment happen here locally. I also, I'm, I'm very happy to see, you know, a lot of condos going up, a lot of, you know, um, that, that infrastructure that's going to go with, you know, the hopefully influx of people that are coming in. Do you think generally speaking, we are ready to, for the amount of, um, um, new Windsorites that we're going to see and, and our businesses ready 
or, or willing to sort of, again, be that progressive uh, beacon um, that I think many are, but again, many are not. So I'm not from Windsor originally. Uh, I moved here with my partner in 2015, been here about seven years. I actually live in the county now. Um, but I recall the first time I walked into a bank when I moved into the region and I was declined um, a, a credit card until they knew who my partner was. Uh, my partner is a white, a white male and I gained his privilege. My bank account numbers didn't change. Nothing changed. He wasn't even there. Someone just recognized me. And all of a sudden, instantly, I, I was able to get a bank account. That was seven years ago. Then about um, two years ago, I was teaching just before the pandemic, grade 12 at Massey. Um, and I was teaching world issues. We talked about a, a lot about everything that happens in the world and how we're changing and I was floored and, and it's quite upsetting to hear that more than half of my students in that grade 12 class had experienced a, some form of racism or discrimination in Windsor, in their schools, in their communities, at work. And it was tied to their religion or, or their skin color or their sex or sexuality to the point where I've had students... Um, come to me because they've been kicked off of public transit in Windsor because of their skin color. And so I would say that it was grim seven years ago. It's It was grim two years ago. And I think the more you talk to people, the more tragic our situation is. But I don't think that the tragedy of our region is indicative of where we can go. We have a lot of very committed, passionate people that want to change, want to be a part of the change, and they're willing to help with that change. And I think that's what really is that light that's going to bring us to become more welcoming and flourish and thrive with all of the changing demographics in the next coming years. It really breaks my heart, Janelle, um, speaking as a father now of two, um, to know that, you know, I used to think, okay, well, in the 80s, I mean, I was, you know, in my broadcast career here over the last 20 years, I, I, I've been very vocal on air about bullying and, and some of the things that, you know, growing up in South Walkerville uh, and, and in the Walker Homesites area, some of the things that my brother, who is autistic, and I would have to uh, deal with and, you know, how that sort of permeated who I am as an individual going forward. Um, but again, that's in 1986-87, right? We fast forward to, like you said, 2020, 2022, you know, now we're in sort of the, you know, uh, first few years here in the 2020s, so to speak. And I look at my son and my daughter and I'm like, you know, I, I hope we can turn a page as a society or even as just as a region, if you want to just focus on that, because I think who Windsor is, is changing. I believe it's changing for the better. We're seeing um, a lot of great cultural diversity um, in the region. But you're right. I, I definitely think that's going to ha that's going to have to ha be a big sticking point. And going back to my days at the CBC, we used to cover many stories on, you know, these D, E, and I groups from a municipal government perspective, and then from a private perspective, trying to influence change, trying to work with some progressive and not so progressive organizations. Again, this is pre-pandemic three years ago. So, Will it take somebody, some somebody in a leadership position? Will it take people in these particular positions to continue to show not only the benefits from a business standpoint, Janelle, but from a cultural standpoint, from a community standpoint, that this is the change that should happen, that can happen, that we need to make happen here locally? Honestly, I think there needs to be some sort of public response. Um, I have been doing this work for quite a while. I have made a lot of amazing contacts um, with people who are doing the same work, St. Clair College, University of Windsor, with the school board um, and other community organizations. But no one in a position of power has publicly taken an opportunity to have a conversation with me. I've never had the opportunity to speak with anyone in our government in our region or anyone that owns major organizations in our region. We have a huge population of growers in, in the county that support migrant workers. 
-hmm. I haven't had conversations with the people who are touching on these large, diverse populations. And I'm seeing the change coming from small, middle-sized organizations who are really seeing the impact of diversity, equity, and inclusion, not just because they maybe identify with an equity-seeking group, but because they're having conversations with the people they employ, they're seeing the benefits of change. And when you have big organizations, they are never seeing the day-to-day. You have executives in an office, and especially here in in Windsor-Essex, we have the office staff. A lot of these manufacturers are located differently um, than plants. And so you're not seeing the actual impact of the decisions that are being made. And so it's just a conversation that people need to have. And there's lots of people to do it. And those conversations aren't scary. And that's the misconception. They're not scary. There's no blame being placed on anyone. And so there's no fear to have these. These are conversations that people are willing to be open, honest, candid, and just genuine with you to help improve, not just for your organization, but for our our community. Because what happens is if we don't pay attention to this now, people are going to leave. They're going to leave and go places that care. And then we're going to see the detrimental effects all at once. Because all these people are coming here now, they know that they can move here, which means that they know they can leave as well. Yeah, I, 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 geez, that's something we have to talk about too, Janelle, too, is it's, you know, we've, if you look at it mathematically, right, with all the announcements we've had in the last month and the influx of people, I mean, the infrastructure is starting to be there to welcome people into the region. I mean, especially in the Tecumseh area. I mean, I'm in Amherstburg myself. I travel out to Tecumseh probably once or twice a week for work and to see some of the infrastructure that's out there. It's like we're building uh, a whole new section or multiple sections of the city to accommodate the mega hospital, to accommodate the battery plant. To, I mean, they announced today in the media, the mega hospitals plan for at least nine to 10 years from now. So it's going to be a major infrastructure project out along Walker Road in 42. So you look at those different things, but it's like, okay, so all this is going to require bodies. All this is going to require people. So how are we keeping people here? And I, it goes back to it. Like we had said, Janelle, at the beginning of the show, are the people in management positions and in, in, in positions of power and organizations saying to themselves, am I spending time with the people who are making these organizations work? Am I spending time on the floor? Am I getting to know these people? Am I getting to understand what makes them tick? How can I make them feel like they're the be- their best selves? And I don't know if that's just a failure of leadership or, or there's a disconnect, but you know, I've, I've run in, into my career to Janelle, people who, you know, they sort of dictate from a, from afar where you can kind of spend some time um, where these people are at, where they're working, kind of understand who they are, what drives them, and make them feel vested in something too. So you can hopefully retain them down the line. And if it comes into that DE&I conversation again is saying, okay, well, there's some there's people here who let's find out what is it going to take to attract talent? What is it going to take to to make them feel welcomed to this so I can expand my talent pool for these particular positions? Retention is is a big conversation that needs to be had. Um, it used to be the perspective where you could put a job posting and a hundred people would apply and then you get your the the pick of them. And now it's you put a job posting and you might get some people that apply, maybe they're not all qualified, and you have to decide who's gonna be best for your organization. Are they gonna leave? if you only give them four sick days and they need five. And so the combination of inattention to retention strategies, but also the inattention to the diversification of work. You and I both work from home. There are thousands of jobs available to the people in Windsor-Essex that are remote. And all you need is an internet connection and a device. And I've seen students working from class and this is in 2020 in my classroom, they're working remotely (laughs) doing things on their phone. And I even saw an article today about Freshie. um, And I don't know if you you know the fast food chain Freshie. They are now running out of Toronto virtual cashiers that are being hired from Nicaragua. So they're video feeding in a virtual cashier from Nicaragua to replace jobs here. There's people that have opportunities everywhere. So why are we not focusing on the people we have in our region, keeping them 
to keep our region alive. It, it's, we only have a matter of time before the virtual world is going to take that talent away from us. When you talk about opportunity too, and, and I wanted to talk to you about this too. I mean, we've talked about the management layers. We've talked about the folks who make these organizations run. Uh, we talked about reaching out to communities and, and sort of that underrepresented uh, factor. What about from a board perspective? Um, and, and I guess lack of representation on, on boards. Um, what is it going to take? You know, I've heard, well, we've sent it out. Nobody's applied from that particular uh, demographic. Nobody's applied for, and it's like, but are we, are we really doing ourselves the service of, of sending those out? Do, do you know what I mean? Like, like how engaged are we to really represent who is in the community or who's going to benefit from these services on these particular boards? So I'm, I'm very grateful that I'm currently working on my PhD. And so working and in being in school and, and doing other, other, um, other things all together at the same time, I've become very limited in what I can do. But I'll tell you that every board opportunity that I've been sent has been sent by a black woman to me. I've never been sent an, a, a board opportunity from anyone else and it's always an organization that already has black women on their board or women on their board who will acknowledge the need for that diversification. And I think that's where it is, is you're not seeing the extension to people, but also there are those select few people in our community that are sitting on 10 boards because they are a pillar of our community representing women, representing black women, representing uh, 2SLGBTQIA plus community, they're, they're being spread thin because they're, there's expectations for who sits on a board and the qualifications for who sits on a board or what, what they're going to bring to our organization. And I think that process is so selective that they, the pool gets very tiny and those same people are asked over and over and over again, stretching them very thin, but also not offering opportunity to other people who can provide the necessary advisory that a board member would. With a few minutes left to go here on the show, and it's been just a blessing to talk to you. I really appreciate your insight. What is something that you want people to understand when it comes to DE&I? Who have heard about it? They've they've heard about it in the news, in the media. It seems to be uh, something that continues to, like you had said, it's sometimes a bit of a polarizing topic for for people. What do you want them to know? It starts with them. It starts with them looking up what DE and I means and looking at who they are, how they situate themselves in their community who their social circles are, how they interact with people that are different than them. And that's a conversation that I like to have right off the bat with everyone is once you start to understand who you are and how you interact with your community, you can start to see where you're not looking and what what you're not seeing. And so there's a graphic that it's the elephant and everyone's touching a different part of the elephant and they're all with a blindfold on describing what they what they feel. Some people are touching the trunk and they say it's a snake. Some people are touching the foot and they say it's a stone. Someone's touching the tail and says it's a broom. And when they take their blindfold off, they realize they're all touching an elephant. And I think that's where we're at. We're all touching the elephant from different spots. Everyone's got the blindfold on. So it's time to take your blindfold off and realize that we need everyone else around us, but you have to understand what your perspective is first. Uh, a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. All the best to you. Uh, I will check in with you as we continue on with the show. And I want to thank you again for spending some time, some fantastic insight here on the show tonight. And so hopefully our viewers and listeners take away about the possibilities when it comes to DE and I for the Windsor-Essex area. Thank you so much, Janelle. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Janelle Abella, who is my guest here on the show, uh, just a fantastic woman. Uh, lots of information for you. A couple of people on LinkedIn asking too, um, you know, where do we get more information? You can find Janelle on uh, LinkedIn. You can add her as well in terms of what she can do for your particular organization and um, illuminate what D-E-N-I means to you uh, and what can be meant to your organization, your particular 
group uh, and sort of wrap your head around the fact that it is 2022. Um, and I think, you know, Windsor, I've said many times on social media with all these different announcements coming down the pipe over the last little bit, um, we are at the cusp of a golden age here in the region, not only from um, a community standpoint, from uh, from an infrastructure standpoint, from a jobs perspective too. And I think it's it's high time that a lot of the organizations and, and groups kind of change their mindset and start to put people in those particular positions to sort of drive where we're going to go over the next 10 to 15 years. I go back to um, some of the experiences I've had over the last 20 years too. And I remember one time applying for a job um, in my broadcast career and then being told that my background isn't representative of what the audience wants. And that was said verbally to me after applying to a particular position that was open. Um, I had worked at this particular organization for almost 20 years. And um, that's when I knew, for me personally, um, no matter what I did as a Filipino Canadian, I would not be treated the same as other people in the organization. So it was time to go. Um, took me a long time to figure that out. But it also took me a while to sort of reconcile that with myself. Uh, and what I try to do, certainly from my perspective with working with individuals, is to try to see um, the good and the collective talent in individuals, regardless of their background, regardless of who they are, you know, sexual orientation, uh, their ethnicity, anything like that. It's about coming together for a common goal and working together because I may not have that perspective that that person has. And I want that perspective because I might be missing something or I probably am missing something. Um, but that, yeah, that, that, that resonated with me for a long time. I mean, it was almost five years after the fact and I still, every once in a while when things come up in the media, when it comes to, um, you know, you hear these stories in the media sometimes about equity and, you know, people, you know, these terrible things that are people are doing when they're discriminated against. And, you know, it kind of resonates with me, too. I think about my kids and uh, I certainly hope that if my kids work hard, they'll be able to have some great opportunities and then also pay it forward. It doesn't have to be as complicated as that. But uh, regardless, Janella Bella, great guest here on the Arms Women Like Project, and I appreciate her time with my audience tonight. And just before we wrap up the show, we want to remind you that we continue to brew good news. We have season two Arms Movement Like Project mugs that are available right now for you. They're $20 a piece, dishwasher safe. Uh, they're also microwavable safe. Uh, 100% of the, the proceeds of these mugs go to benefit the Windsor-Essex County Humane Society and the Ronald McDonald House at Windsor Regional Hospital. So if you want to pick those up, you can message my good friends Glenn and Kim at the Hag Shop, Hag Customs on Facebook, and they will hook you up with those mugs. And they're very, 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 very high quality mugs. So look for them on Facebook as well. Okay, so that's going to do it for tonight's show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to check us out on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. And then we're back again next week on Tuesdays, 8 o'clock with the Arms Movement Like Project. Thanks for watching.